So our, our parable this morning, uh, this story from Jesus, is told as he is on the verge of entering into Jerusalem uh, for what will be his final trip. Uh, this is him on the way to Jerusalem. He'll, uh, in just a few chapters, we'll see him ride in uh, to the triumphal entry on the back of a donkey. Just a little while longer, we'll see him betrayed and on trial. This is Jesus' final journey to his passion and suffering and death. And as he's moving towards Jerusalem, his disciples are starting to get excited because they believe, uh, Luke tells us, that at this time, on this entrance into Jerusalem, that Jesus is going to bring in the kingdom of God. That when they come into Jerusalem, that Jesus is going to be greeted with the praises of the people, and he's going to be enthroned as king over Israel, that he's going to overcome their Roman oppressors, liberate Israel, usher in a new age of peace and flourishing for Israel and righteousness and goodness and wholeness that's going to begin in Israel and then spread and lead to the flourishing of the whole world. That's what the kingdom of God is. It's what all of Israel looked for, the day that God himself would bring righteousness and peace and justice to the world through his king, starting in Jerusalem, but then radiating out to the rest of the world. And so as Jesus was headed to Jerusalem, and the disciples begin to think that, okay, now is when he's going to do this. Now is when he's going to bring the kingdom. Jesus says, yes, but it's going to be different than you expect. It's going to be different than you imagine. And so he tells them this strange story to try to begin to shape their understanding of what the kingdom of God is and what their role in it looks like, what their place in that kingdom looks like. You know, this is a, a crucially important question for us. What is the kingdom of God? What is it, what is a good and flourishing world look like under God's reign? And then how do, how do our lives find their place underneath it? What do we do? How do we leverage our talents and our abilities and our resources and our gifts? The limited time that we have on this earth, how do we orient all of that to seeking the kingdom of God? That's what Jesus said is to be the end of the Christian life, to to seek first the kingdom of God. What does it look like to seek his kingdom? You know, uh, just this week on Friday, November 11th, we celebrated Veterans Day. Uh, thank you to all of our veterans and active duty service uh, members. Uh, November 11th is uh, both Veterans Day here. It's called Armistice Day uh, in Western Europe. It's the, uh, the end of the First World War when that treaty was signed. But also, uh, and interestingly, on November 11th, the church, especially in Europe, but, but a lot of the high church traditions, celebrate November 11th every, day, every year as the Feast of St. Martin. Uh, St. Martin is uh, Martin of Tours. And he was, interestingly enough, that it falls on Veterans Day, he was a soldier. Uh, he was, Martin of Tours was born in 316 AD. So just a few centuries into the Christian, into the life of the Christian church. He was born into a world, into the Roman Empire, where Christians were still very, very much a minority. It was still very, very much a, a persecuted minority where you risked your, your life in proclaiming your faith up until uh, uh, the Edict of Milan. So he was a second-generation Roman citizen and a Roman soldier. He was a cavalry officer in the Roman army. And if you were to ask most of the residents of, of uh, Western Europe, of the Mediterranean world at that time, what is the hope of the world? 
What is it that's going to usher in flourishing and peace and prosperity for the whole world? They would have said the Roman Empire. The Roman Empire, compared to their surrounding uh, world, knew unmatched power militarily and economically. They knew unmatched prosperity and trade, unmatched technology and abilities. And if you had asked almost any resident of the Mediterranean world, what is the hope of the kingdom? What's the hope of the world? They would have said the Pax Romana, the peace of Rome, that as Rome goes, as Rome grows, those underneath it will flourish and, and will enjoy it. And so Martin found himself as a cavalry officer fighting in the northern stretches of the Roman Empire, fighting against a people known as the Gauls up in Germany. These were barbaric pagan people, people who worshipped the gods of, of trees and streams. Uh, their, their religion looked like what, what most of us think of as kind of druid religion. And so Martin was there, and he was converted, converted as a young man. And he found himself having a, cri a crisis of conscience, one believing that what he was doing in, in slaughtering these people was not what God would have him do. And then a crisis of the trajectory of his life, believing, you know what? The hope of the world isn't wrapped up in Rome. It's not wrapped up in the expansion of this empire. It's wrapped up in the kingdom of God. And so he went uh, very dangerously, went to his commanding officers and said, I no longer consider myself a soldier of Rome. I want to be a soldier of Christ. And he left a very secure and prosperous job in the Roman army. And he became first a student and a monk, and then a missionary church planner. He went and planted a church uh, in France, in the city of Tours, uh, and his converts eventually made him bishop of Tours. He would go on to plant churches in Paris and plant hospitals and plant all sorts of works, putting out a beachhead for the church in France. Martin was asking in his time and in his way, what is the kingdom of God? What is the hope of the world? And then how do I give my life to it? How do I align every gift that he's given me, all of my resources, all of my gifts, to bringing the kingdom of God? Now, that doesn't mean that everybody has to leave their job and go become a church planner, right? We, we have some of those. But it does mean that each one of us needs to learn how to enter into whatever your vocation is with a vision not just for your kingdom, not just for the growth and prosperity of your work or your nation, but to, see, to ask yourself, what is the kingdom of God? What does it look like for it to come in my place and in my time? And how do I order my life behind it? And that's, that's what Jesus in this strange story that can be kind of hard for us to make our way through. If we remember, that's what he's answering. What is the kingdom of God? How does it come and how do we order our lives behind it? We can start to understand it. So Jesus says, it's not going to come all at once when we get to Jerusalem. In fact, it's kind of like this. Suppose, uh, suppose that there was a nobleman who went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and then return. Suppose there was a nobleman who was about to receive a kingdom, and before he could receive that kingdom, he had to go off into a far country to be crowned as king and then to return. This is something that uh, Jesus' hearers would have known something about. In their own day, in, their, in the contemporary world of Jesus, there was a very similar situation. There was a man named Archelaus who was the heir to Herod the Great. He was the king over Israel under Caesar. So Rome possessed Israel, and they put a governor or a king over Israel. 
Well, Herod the Great died, and Archelaus, in order to be crowned as king over Israel, had to go to Rome, get crowned, and then come back as the king. Right? And so he said, imagine that the kingdom of God is something like that. There was a man who was to be crowned king, but he had to first go into a far country to be crowned king, and then to come back as king. And to remember where Jesus is. He's about to enter into Jerusalem. And he's saying, I am this king who's about to go into the far country to be crowned as king. What is the far country that he's talking about? Well, remember what awaits Jesus in Jerusalem. His, his betrayal, his crucifixion, his death. Right to the far country that Jesus is being called to enter into to receive his kingdom is the far country that's marked by the crown of thorns and the bitter wine, and the nails in his hands, and the cross, and the tomb. That the far country that Jesus is going to enter into is death itself, ultimately to triumph over it in his resurrection, to defeat death, and to be given a kingship that finally and ultimately can triumph over the forces that hold this world in bondage. Right For anyone to bring in the kind of kingdom that the Bible promises, a kingdom marked by universal flourishing and peace and well-being and an absence of mourning and an absence of fear. The specter of death that hangs over all of humanity has to be dealt with. It had to be dealt with. The only king that could be the king over all things had to first go into the far country. He had to go on a journey that none of us could take, that none of us could accompany him with, that none of his disciples could go with him. He had to go to the far country on our behalf. We need a king that's gone to the far country. You know, you know this if you've ever walked with anyone through the valley of the shadow of death. If you've ever accompanied anyone to the point in their last days and into their death. If you've ever lost anyone that you love. You know that you need a comfort that can only come from the one who's gone to the far country on our behalf and has triumphed over it. When my own father uh, was in a battle with cancer, a battle that ultimately cost him his life, I was, and we all were, uh, resolved to walk with him, that he would not walk alone through that battle. And so we walked with him through hospital hallways and sat with him as the chemo dripped into his veins. We went and stayed up with him all night at the ER. Uh, we accompanied him when he was moved back home into hospice care. We were committed that he would not walk alone and we would walk with him. But there came a moment, there came a moment in his very last hours where it became painfully clear to me that the final leg of his journey, I could not walk with him, right? That he was going into a far country, a country that those of us who love him couldn't go ahead of him. We couldn't tell him what it was going to be like. No human being could that some of the sting of death is in the, the, the fact that no one has gone in front of us to come back and tell us, it's going to be okay, this is what it's like. But our great comfort was in knowing that he had a Savior who'd gone into the far country, one who had gone ahead of him on that journey, and had secured for him a kingdom, had secured for him life with him forever. He needed a king who'd gone into the far country. Those of us who are mourning Carol's death, 
those of us who are missing our sister and our friend. Treasure the fact that she knew in her bones that she had a king who'd gone to the far country for her, who'd triumphed over sin and death, taken her penalty, taken her place, and had made a place for her. And that she is now with him there in the far country, with her king. Carol is not losing a minute's sleep. She did not stay up till 3 a.m. worrying about who won the election. She didn't wake up stressed or anxious about what was going to happen because she knew that her king wasn't in the Oval Office. He was on the throne of heaven, ruling over all things. And she was waiting with him now, and she'll return with him in glory and be raised from the dead. And that is God's truth as surely as the sun will rise tomorrow. We need a king who's gone to the far country for us. And so Jesus says, that's where I'm going. That's what I'm to secure for you, and I'm going to come back. But when I, when I return, it's going to be like this king goes to a far country, and he comes back as the king, but not everyone recognizes him as king. Right? We're told that a certain group of his people, a certain group of that people that he went, went, went to the far country to be crowned over, did not want him to be king over them. And so they resist, so they fight back against his kingship. Again, the story of Archelaus is, is illustrative for us in this. We're told that Archelaus, when he went to go be crowned king over Israel, when he went to, went to Rome to be crowned king, that some of the Jews in Israel didn't want him to be king over them, so they sent a delegation to Caesar to say, no, no, don't make Archelaus king. And so Jesus is again playing on this very, very real life scenario that they would have encountered. That Archelaus came back into a contested kingdom, into a kingdom where some recognized his kingship and others didn't. And Jesus is saying, that's what the kingdom of God is like. We feel that, don't we? We know what it's like to live under a contested kingship. We believe, those of us who, who place our faith and trust in Christ as king, believe that his kingship is settled, that it was secured through his resurrection. But we live in a world where that kingship is very much in doubt, where we live and we rub shoulders and we live and share our lives with many who, quite frankly, believe we're crazy. To believe that the resurrection of a man 2,000 years ago means that he's king of the universe. Right? We live our life in this contested world, in this world where not everyone receives this kingship. And Jesus uh, says some hard things about what judgment under his kingship looks like. Right? Archelaus, you know what? I mean, you don't have to be an expert in ancient history to figure out what Archelaus did to the delegation of people that went to protest his kingship. As soon as he was crowned king, he came back and he slaughtered all of them. Right? That's what ancient kings did when people resisted them. Well, Jesus doesn't do that. There's some hard words about judgment here that ultimately, yes, there's a, the way you respond to the kingdom, whether you receive his kingship by faith or reject it in unbelief, does have very real consequences in God's judgment. But Jesus in his grace prolongs his return. He prolongs his judgment so that as many people as possible can, can, can come into his kingdom, can choose to receive his reign. But that's what it means to be a Christian. It's to believe that Jesus has paid the price for your sin and that he's your king. He's the whole world's king. You know, we're, we're in this, I think all of us are in, a, are in an ambivalent place when it comes to God's kingship. Right? Every one of us, 
wants a Savior. Right? Every one of us is drawn to the love and compassion of Jesus. Every one of, every one of us, when we feel ourselves bumping up against the limits of our own mortality, can, can, can think about the comfort that I just talked about of having a king that's triumphed over death and go, yes, that sounds great. But every one of us in our humanity resists kingship. Every one of us, there's never been a human being born in sin that liked the idea of submitting to a king that we have to obey unquestionably, that likes giving up control over our own lives to one who's the rightful king of all things and who has the right to command us what we do with our bodies, what we do with our money, what we do with our souls and our relationships. Right? None of us takes kingship easily. And that's called sin. Right? Adam and Eve didn't take it easily either. None of our human ancestors have. That we all buck up against submitting to the king. But Jesus says, if you want victory, if you want life, if you want my comforts, if you want the goodness of my grace and my mercy, you have to bow and you have to receive my kingship. Trusting that I'm not like the kings of this world. I'm not like the kings of this world who ask for you to submit that we can lord, so that I can lord it over you. But I invite you to come to me and to find life and in submission to me, find your real freedom, your real meaning and purpose in life. So the story goes on. So it's a king who goes to a far country. He comes back into a contested kingdom. If that's what the kingdom's like, he then turns to, well, what's our role in that kingdom? What are we as those who do find ourselves under the kingship of Christ to embrace his reign by faith? Where do, what do we do in this interim period? And he says, it's like a nobleman who called these ten servants to himself. And he gave them ten minas and said to them, engage in business until I come. So that's where we find ourselves in the story. We're the, we're the servants of the king. And the king, before he goes, he says, he gives to each of us, he gives to each of these servants a gift. He gives them each a mina. A mina, uh, we think, is about the equivalent of, let's call it $20,000. It's, it's about a third of a year's wage of a middle-income person in the ancient world. So it's, it's about four months' worth of work. That, that, that's, what, that's what he's giving them. And he's saying, while I'm gone, while I'm away, take this sum of money and do business with it. Take it and invest it and grow it. So that when I come back, I can receive an increase over what I've given you to invest. So take the mina, invest it, and grow it. The mina uh, is a symbol of God's grace. You know, every, every dime that this nobleman had was his, right? It all belonged to him. Every, every bit of it was his property. And yet he gave some of it to these servants for their use, for their investment, for their growth. And so the mina symbolizes those things that Jesus gives to us, that he gives to us in his grace, which we have to admit is absolutely everything we've got, right? If, if we're honest, we can admit that it, it, there's nothing that we have, not our health, not our bodies, not our energy, not our relationships, not our money. Nothing that we have is ours in and of itself. It's all ours by virtue of it being given to us by God, right? He's given us the minds by which we think and by which we work. He's given us the bodies by which we draw our breath and do our work. He's given us the relationships of our families and friends. That God has given to each of us in this life 
something sheerly out of the goodness of his grace. And then on top of that in Christ, he's given us absolute love and inclusion. He's given us the spirit, his very presence. He's given us inclusion into his family. We can only look at God and say, we are blessed. God has given us so much, and it's all purely by his grace. It's all surely just out of his benevolence. That's his his goodness and his love towards us. It's all his. And what this story shows us is that all of those things, the grace and rich that he's given us in Christ and the spiritual realm, physical realm, relational realm, that we're to treat all of it as though it's not ours but is his, and we're to invest it into the world for the growth of his kingdom. Jack Miller, who is a kind of a pastoral mentor, uh, says this. He says, God's grace is not a coin to be spent on yourself. God's grace is not a coin to be spent on yourself. What does that mean? It means that for, for Christians, God's grace isn't something that we're given just so that we can enjoy it on our own. Right? It's not so that we can get together with other Christians and just talk about how great and wonderful it is that we've been given God's grace. Right? It's not to, to, to borrow the words from the Pharisees from uh, Jonathan's sermon last week. It's not just so that we can say, God, thank you that we are so blessed and life is so wonderful and we're not like those people out there. Right? It's not a coin just to be spent on ourselves. It's not just so that we can enjoy the blessings of our life and God's grace and our families and our work, and our money. It's not just meant to be spent on ourselves, but to be leveraged and to be spent for the coming of God's kingdom. That's what uh, God's grace is for. It's not, all, it's not just given to us, but it's always given to us in order that it can th- flow through us into others, into our communities. And yet, uh, the focus of the parable uh, tightens even further from these ten servants Uh, When the nobleman returns, he calls three of them to himself. And he says, show me what you did with the mina that I gave you. Show me what you did with the grace that was given to you. And the first one says, I took it and I invested it and it earned ten times, a tenfold return. Here it is. And he says, well done, good servant. In the kingdom, you'll have even more. The other one says, it it got five times return. And he says, well done. In In the kingdom, you'll rule over five cities. You notice that between those two men, he doesn't differentiate, really. I mean, he doesn't say, great job to the guy who made ten times profit, and well, all right, to the guy who made five. Right? Ultimately, our accountability before God isn't isn't ultimately to the results that we produce. Right? The fruit of the kingdom is ultimately in God's hands. Right? Both of these men who invested it and who risked and who put their their gifts out there are blessed richly. They're, They're both rewarded. But then the final man, the third man, comes. And what he had done was he had taken the mina and he'd wrapped it up tightly in a napkin and he'd hidden it in his sock drawer so that nobody would, if anybody broke in, they wouldn't find it. Or maybe he put it in a safe and slid it under his bed or under a floorboard in his house. But he wrapped it up safely and he hid it. And when the master comes looking for a return, he says, well, here it is. I gave it, I got it back for you. Because I know that you're a hard man. I know that you're severe and that you punish wrongdoing. And so I didn't want to lose any of it because I was scared of you. And so here it is. And the man judges him. You know, all of us, uh, where this story lands for me, and I think where it lands for all of us, is that for every one of us, we have a choice to make. 
Are we going to live our lives with the gifts that God's given them, given us, holding them loosely and investing them in the world? Or are we going to wrap them up in a handkerchief and hide them away and play it safe? Right, this, this sermon is often, uh, people often make a lot of hay on this sermon for financial giving. And yeah, just give, please, give, give money. That's a, that's a really important part of this. Um, is that part of the gifts that God's given us are financial. This church exists uh, and is funded by your giving, and so we need you to give. Um, But that's not all that this passage is about. This passage isn't just about your financial giving. This is about what you do with your person, with your gifts, um, with your fears and vulnerabilities, um, with your relationships with your neighbors. Do you take all of that and wrap it up in a napkin and hide it in your coat pocket so that, so that you don't risk really venturing out in an adventure of faith, sharing your life, sharing your faith, sharing your love with those who need Christ, with those who need your care? Will you wrap your life up in a handkerchief or will you risk it for the growth of the kingdom? You know, this, this means for us that we live beyond self-preservation. Right? I think, I think at the heart of what this, the, 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 the servant who wrapped it up he was, he was just worried about self-preservation. He was worried about not losing what he had been given. And at every point, we're asked to choose between love and self-preservation. Are we going to protect ourselves? Are we going to protect what life's given us and what God's given us? Or are we going to risk it? You know, I had a couple. Uh, God just opened up some great conversations this week with some of the staff here at City Rescue Mission. I love the, for those of you who spend time here at the Rescue Mission, y'all have great, great staff. But I was just able to talk with some of them about, the, honestly, some of the heartbreak of ministry. You love someone, uh, and then, you know, like Carol, you risk losing them. Uh, there were a number of people who've recently left the program here, uh, either falling back into relapse or leaving. And these are people that the staff love. These are people that a lot of you love. And we're just talking about how, you know what, life would be so much easier if we just didn't care. Right? Life would be easier if we didn't invest our heart and our care with the risk and possibility of it being broken and broken people. And that at every point we're being asked to choose between self-preservation out of fear or risk out of love and faith. It's a call to invest our life in the kingdom. To invest our life in the kingdom. I love this quote from Wendell Berry. Uh, He was a farmer in Kentucky, uh, so he uses a lot of agricultural metaphors. He says, invest in the millennium, plant sequoia trees, say that your main crop is the forest that you did not plant and that you will not live to harvest. Right? It takes faith to plant a sequoia tree, right? a plant that's going to take hundreds of years to grow into what it's going to become. It takes faith to plant a church, uh, to build into a church something that, that we may not see the full fruit of, that we hope grows and flourishes for our city for our children, for our neighbors a hundred years from now. A church that slowly and over time flourishes and makes a difference, a lasting, deep difference in our city. It takes a lasting investment from us. I'll conclude uh, just by reiterating what I said a little bit before our prayer prayer request. That I am more convinced than ever that what this city needs, that what our world needs, is a church that testifies in our message and in our person, to the reconciling grace of God in our city. 
A church that in a graceless and unforgiving world is a beacon of grace and forgiveness where people know that they can come and receive God's love and his welcome. In a city that's often divided by race and by economics, to be a city, where, to be a church where we really do see increasing, and we're not there yet, intimacy, deep relationships between white and black, rich and poor, Latino, immigrant, all kinds of people coming together in one family. I'm committed to not being a church that wraps our mina in a tidy little handkerchief and hides it away, but that risks a little bit in order to gain a lot for, for what we could do for this city. You know, we're doing, we're doing well financially. I've been telling you guys that. Haley and I don't wonder where our next meal is going to come from, and we thank you for that. That is a, that is a gift to us. But it takes more. I want to call us to more. More financial giving. I dream of the day. Dream of the day. Pray for the day. When I might have an African-American pastor uh, serve alongside me in this church. That we really could be, uh, in our leadership, a reconciled leadership for, for a community that could seek to increasingly become more and more diverse. That's going to take money. That's going to take faith. That's going to take hope out of all of us as we pray for that. I dream of being able to, to make more of a difference in the youth of our community. We've got a great and awesome growing group of high schoolers and middle schoolers here. We've got, we've got volunteers from this church that every week go into the campus of Lee High School and build friendships with high schoolers and point them towards the grace of Jesus. Our church could do incredible things with the youth of this community. I dream of our church planting churches to the north and to the west and all over this city. Right, Christ Church East is getting ready, hopefully in the next little bit, to plant a church at the beach. How about our church planting Christ Church north side before too long? All of it takes risk. It takes us being willing to not live with our minas wrapped up in napkins, not living for the little things of this world, but venturing greatly to build and establish something great. Risking our lives and our labors to share our lives and our faith with our neighbors. Right? To speak the truth of, of God's grace. We can do it. You know, you know what it takes to be that kind of person? Uh, to be that kind of church? Well, what held this man back? It wasn't his lack of resources. It wasn't um, that he didn't have what he needed in his possession. It was his fear. Not fear of what would happen to him necessarily, but his fear of what God was like. Right? The gospel, the good news that God is the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger and abounding in love. The God who's given himself for us liberally in Christ. When you believe that God is that God, it frees you to risk. It frees you to give. It frees you to be generous and adventurous in your faith. If you believe that God is stern, that he's waiting to punish, then it makes you hoard. So the walk of faith and giving both our money and our lives is believing that God is who he's revealed himself to be, not who we fear him to be. The gospel frees us to be those kinds of people and to be that kind of church. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, um, we come before you and we just pray that you would help us to make our lives matter. 
in your kingdom. Lord, we confess that we are likely and and tempted to live towards little things. We're tempted to use the gifts that you've given us to secure our little kingdoms, uh, to build our little comforts. Um, I know that I am. Lord, each one of us, we want our lives to matter. Uh, We want our lives to matter, not just for our families, uh, but for eternity. We want our lives to matter in your kingdom. We want our lives to matter for generations to come in this city. And Father, your grace is not only that you save us and bring us to yourself, but that you actually use us. Small and uh, weak as we are, foolish as we can be, you use us in the expansion of your kingdom. And so, Lord, we pray that you would help us uh, to sow our lives for an eternal harvest, uh, believing that our king is building something uh, here in this world that is lasting and eternal and glorious and good. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.